0: As you're doing so, I'd like to mention two things. Uh, on the Sundays, which is typically once a month, where we have communion, at the very end of the service as you exit, there should be ushers there to receive what we call the deacon's fund offering. That's the only fund we have in our church that goes to help church members. All the other funds we have are sent out to, to other things, but we try to very discreetly help members that have particular needs. So we rely upon you to to give to that and also to make uh, our deacons known if you know of situations that, uh, that should warrant attention from that fund. The second thing I'd like to say before we uh, read from Matthew 28 is um, last night I went to uh, YouTube and I looked at the promotional video for this marriage conference. It only lasted about three minutes and I'd urge you to do the same. And uh, He had me in about two minutes. I said oh this is what this is going to be about this is going to be good who typically comes to marriage conferences those with strong marriages uh, there are no perfect marriages there's no perfect families and we can all learn something Barbara and I are having our 40th anniversary this year and Our marriage is different than 40 years ago, and there's stresses, and there are changes that take place. And we can all learn something from this, whether you're not married yet, if you think you'll be married one day, uh, or or whether you are married now or what, come. Um, In the years I've been the pastor, I don't think I've been aware of so many marriages that are under attack and stressed in our congregation than right now. That had nothing to do with us scheduling, except for God's providence, scheduling this marriage seminar at this time. But it is providential. that comes now. So I hope that you will take advantage of this. You could say, well, I'll just get the videos and watch it on my own. You can buy them online. I saw them. But there's something about learning in a corporate environment with uh, with other people that that are uh, learning the same thing. Okay, Matthew 28. Uh, Today we're going to look at verses 16 and following. I entitled this, Now What? Meaning, Now What? After the missions conference. What am I supposed to do with what I've heard over the past couple of weeks? Now, my favorite, probably favorite passage in the Bible is uh, here, the context is Jesus has been raised from the dead. For 40 days, he has appeared to hundreds of people, and now he's going to give these closing words to his disciples. (coughs) Hear God's word beginning in verse 16 of Matthew 28. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So ends the reading of God's word. I am a person who likes to ask why questions. It's not to provoke an argument, as my dad thought as I was growing up. He would always say, don't argue. And I I would want to know what's the... Why are we doing this? What are we trying to accomplish by this? What's the purpose of, of this activity? Or it was more really wanting to understand what are we doing and what result do we want to see? And when you come to local churches, that is very important to ask that question because if we were to hand out a, a blank index card to everyone in this room and if I were to ask you, tell me what you think the purpose of the church ought to be. Probably we would each write something like, uh, well, to, to care for people, to preach God's Word, to teach the Christian faith, uh, to worship God, to gather and to worship God, to engage the community with deeds of, of mercy and love and compassion, uh, to give comfort to the hurting, to give friendships to the lonely, It would be a variety of good things. But the ultimate purpose is bigger than any of those individual things I just mentioned. The ultimate purpose is here. And Christ tells us what the purpose of the church ought to be. He begins with a claim in verse 18. And everything that comes after this rests on this opening statement. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Typically, we read, if you read this passage, we read over that part. But everything's dependent on this claim. Let me try and explain. Let's imagine that today I said, okay, after this service is over, I want everyone here to uh, go down Riverside Drive and let's go to the closest. Uh, car dealership, let's go to Riverside Ford, and I want everyone here to pick out the vehicle you want, ask for the keys, and drive away in it. It's yours. Trust me. It belongs to you. And if you were wise, you would say all that's going to do is get me in trouble, get me arrested for stealing something. That would be true. But what if I said and honestly said and could back it up I recently came into an enormous sum of money, and I have this hobby with car dealerships. And I purchased several, and that's one of those. And I purchased all the inventory. And just to celebrate, what was Harry called this day? Pew Confusion Day. Just to celebrate Pew Confusion Day on time change, I want you to go down there and pick out any vehicle you want and drive away in it. And you could do it. You could legitimately do it. Why? Because the claim, the claim that I said, I came into money, I purchased the dealership, now therefore go. When Christ is going to give us the, the command to make disciples of all nations, it is based on, it is founded on, this opening claim that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Not just some authority, not Authority like temporal car dealerships. All authority everywhere. That's the biblical term in heaven and on earth. Means in every place. In every place. From here to the far side of known universes and so forth. In every place Jesus has authority. And based on the fact that he has that authority. Now he tells us to do something. He gives us this command in verses 19 and 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Now, this is the command that's based on that claim about all authority. It sounds like there's a bunch of commands kind of jammed together in those two verses. Sometimes when I'm teaching a class, I'll ask uh, the students uh, to circle all the verbs in the in those two verses and words like go make disciples baptizing teaching they all appear to be equal commands wrapped up in one and uh, so based on who teaches the passage they might say well the command here is where to go where to go leave leave here and go some other culture cross some cultural barrier and take the gospel Or baptizing them. We should identify people with the church. The way to do evangelism is to bring them into the church. Or teaching. Teaching them not just a little bit of truth, but the whole depth of truth. To observe everything I have commanded you. Well, this is where the original language helps. Because there's one command here. And the command is make disciples. And the other words around that command are modifiers. You could read it like this. As you are going, make disciples. How do you make disciples? By baptizing and by teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. Well, what is a disciple? On a, on a very simple thing, you could say, well, it's a student. Like if you take a lesson, a, a tennis lesson or a, a musical lesson, a piano lesson, and you could say, well, I'm a disciple of that, that teacher, a follower. But spiritually, there's, there's more depth to it. A disciple, true, is a follower of Christ, a person trying to imitate Christ in their word, thought, and deed. A number of years ago, some of our officers and our staff, we really grappled with this. What precisely do we think will describe what a disciple of Jesus is? And we came up with three observations from Scripture. One is it is a person who is exercising the means of grace in his or her own life. This person is praying, meditating on scripture, worshiping God, um, uh, partaking of the sacraments, and so forth. They are exercising the means of grace in his or her own life. Secondly, the person is engaged and equipped in ministering to others. They know how to use their spiritual gifts to, to minister within the sphere where God has placed them. And the third mark is that as a result of these things, this person is experiencing life transformation. So exercising the means of grace in your own life, engaged and equipped in ministering to others, and experiencing life transformation. Let's face it, if we are not experiencing life transformation, if I am not, if you are not, you will not talk to anybody else about Christ. If it is not genuine to you and you, and you can say, hey, I'm seeing God at work in my life, uh, it may not be things that other people can see but you know he's at work in your life, you probably won't talk to anybody else about Christ because there'll be no enthusiasm. So Christ is telling us to make disciples. It's a big task. Though I've, I've forgotten it. I read what the population of the world was when Christ said this. It was less than a billion people at that time. And yet when he says go to all nations, the word there is for people group, ethne not just geographical boundaries like the United States is one nation, but it's many nations within a nation. It's various people groups with various cultural backgrounds and various languages and so forth. So he is saying we are to make disciples of all nations around the planet. We are to penetrate those with the gospel. It's a big task. When I looked yesterday online, the population of the world then was 6 billion 908 million, and I assume a few individuals have probably been born since those results came in, but roughly 7 billion people. Now, that's a lot, and the the best research says that those who profess to be Christians is about 32% of that. Christianity is still the world's largest religion, 32%. But roughly 40% have never even heard about Jesus. Now, that's a lot of people. That's a lot of people groups. And there are a lot of barriers. And if we think 7 billion people and maybe 3 to 4 billion have never even heard of Jesus, that's a lot. If we were to go back in time a million seconds, that's two years ago. But if we were to go back in time a billion seconds, that's 2,000 years ago. So 3 or 4 billion people who have yet to hear is a lot. It's a difficult task. The world's languages, there are many. There are 6,909 languages. And there are still about 1,500 that have no translation of the Bible in them. Now, some of these are only spoken by small tribes. Most of the major languages, Southern, English, Mandarin, they have the Bible translated in those. But there's still others that don't. So the job's not finished. So when we talk about making disciples of all nations, we've got political barriers, we've got economic barriers, we've got philosophical barriers, we have religious barriers, we have language barriers. But he doesn't mention any of that. The commandment is we are to go and we are to make disciples. Do you know what the ultimate goal of Coca-Cola is? Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise, no, I'm going to, if you know and you're certain, would you just raise your hand? All right, there's about 10 hands up. Here's what it is. If you're ever on a game show when you're asked, soft drinks for $400. It is a Coke in the hand of every person on the planet. They can say our goal as a company is a Coca-Cola in the hand of every person on the planet. It's pretty ambitious, isn't it? Think of all that would have to happen uh, for that to be a reality. Well, let's talk something far more important than a soft drink making disciples of all nations. Eternal purposes. So, how do we go about this? Well, Christianity, first and foremost, is a missionary faith. We aim to make disciples. Missions should not be an add on. It, it is essential to the Christian faith. It's just part of it. And we spread the gospel. And we do it through word and deed. We don't do it with weapons. We don't do it with manip- manipulation. We don't conquer people and at gunpoint say, You're going to profess the name of Christ or you and your family will die like some religions do. We proclaim the gospel and God changes hearts. We share our faith with our words and we show our faith with our works. Billy Graham has been quoted a whole lot since his death just within the past two weeks. But here's a quotation I, I, uh, I doubt if you've heard from him. And he says, The evangelistic harvest is always urgent. The destiny of men and of nations is always being decided. Every generation is strategic. We are not responsible for the past generation, and we cannot bear the full responsibility for the next one. But we do have our generation. God will hold us responsible as to how well we fulfill our responsibilities to this age and take advantage of our opportunities. So we have opportunities now in 2018 that people 50 years ago didn't have and there'll be different opportunities 50 years in the future. And the point is we are to be faithful now. I'm heading up the search committee at Strong Tower Fellowship for a new pastor. We've got a great committee we meet every other Monday night. We're to meet tomorrow night. And I have been immersed the past couple of weeks in reading all the history I can find online about the Pleasant Hill neighborhood, which isn't pleasant anymore. And I've read about the 1930s and 40s and 50s and 60s and looked at photographs of of, of people recalling certain schools and and church and so forth, and. And I'll read about this, and okay, so little Richard grew up there, and the moving of his house, and all, and these the first congressman to speak at the U.S., uh, uh, on the floor of the U.S. Congress, he, he was from Pleasant Hill, and uh, first African American to do so, and, and these poets and other famous people that came from Pleasant Hill. But you know what the stark reality is? That is gone. And any person who comes to pastor now must say, I want to know what things are like in 2018. Because the way things were then is not this generation right now. I love the past. If I'm not careful, I can live in the past. But we should glance at it and see what God did and then say, okay, what does God want to do now? What can we do now as things are? So, how do we do this? He gives three calls, I think. We go in three arenas. and This is not from the text, but this is from studying the rest of the New Testament. First is uh, it's a call to cross-cultural missions. That's what we heard about at our missions conference. We heard from missionaries in North Africa. We heard from missionaries in Nicaragua and others. And, and so, we, we send out laborers into the harvest that that go intentionally into a place to reach people with the gospel that's cross-cultural missions the second is a call to church or congregational missions working corporately as a local church to reach people with the gospel we we seek to do that in a variety our when i say we first Presbyterian church seeks to do that with associated ministries like campus clubs doing urban ministry and at times we've had a opportunities to reach with Hispanics through offering English as a second language and and planting new churches in middle Georgia. Um, I I need to compile sometime a list which would pleasantly surprise you of all the churches that this church has started throughout the United States and in other parts of the world. You would be very encouraged by that. But why do we plant new churches? You could say, well, there's a There's a Presbyterian Church in America congregation in Macon. Isn't that enough? One, two, three. Well, planting new churches, the reason you plant them is to reach new people. I meet with a group of pastors each January, about 15 to 20 of us, for two days down in Orlando, and we just talk issues in ministry. One of the pastors, uh, who's about 45, is just finishing his Ph.D. In fact, he did finish it. And the area he chose to study and write on for his Ph.D. was our denomination and studying the demographics of our denomination. And what he found out where he lives in Birmingham is that if you take their presbytery, for those that don't know this Presbyterian talk, that's a geographical area with churches of our denomination in it. And his presbytery is called Evangel Presbytery. Birmingham, Tuscaloosa, all the way from the the west side of the state to the east side of the state, going through the middle part of Alabama. He studied that, among many other places, and he found this out. As far as adult professions of faith, people coming to faith in Christ, that with established churches, which is any church over 10 years old, It takes, in that presbytery, 101 members per year to reach one person. But in a new church, for six people to reach one. Did you hear that? 101 members of established churches to see one profession of faith in a given year, statistically, As opposed to where there's a church plant, six people to reach one. So we spent an hour or two talking about why is that so. Because many of these pastors were church planters at one time. So it's a call to church missions, but what I want to leave you with is a call to personal missions. Cross-cultural, that's what we heard about from our missionaries. Besides giving and prayer, that will not involve most of us. Congregational missions... That should involve most of us in our giving, in our prayers, and in our hands-on. The last one, personal missions, can involve and should involve every person here. And that is seeking to be a personal witness in your own life to the people with whom you have contact, where God has placed you. To use the old... Definition: sharing the claims of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the results up to God. Well, how do we do that? Personal evangelism can, can be terrifying, <laughs> if we're honest. Um, we, we fear it because we, we fear that we'll say the wrong thing or we'll be misinterpreted or we'll be asked a question that we don't know the answer to. When I was a youth director years ago at a church in South Florida, I had an appointment set up to go and talk to a high school student about Christ. We were going to go through the gospel, and I always tried to take another student with me to watch so they could learn, and uh, there was this kid named Brad Barnhill, and I asked him, I think he was a ninth grader, I said, would you like to go with me? I'm going to talk to old Joe over here. We have got set up, I'd like for you to go with me, and and his mother called me. Brad's mom called me. She was a very mature Christian. And she said, Chip, I just want to ask you something. What exactly is going to go on at this meeting? And I said, well, this is my plans. I, he knows why I'm getting with him, the, the student does. I want to go through and talk to him about how he can know whether he will spend eternity with God or not. And, she, and I said, I would like Brad to go just to sit there quietly, watch, listen, learn, and pray silently. And she said, the reason I'm calling, I just want, this will be the first time Brad's done anything like this, and I don't want him to have a bad experience. That's a good comment. And I understood what she meant. I said, I don't think it will be a bad experience, given all the parameters i just given to her. Well, some of you, perhaps, some of us had a bad experience. We brought up our faith, and immediately it either provoked an argument or we we were perceived as being self-righteous or overly condemning or something happened and you said to yourself well I'll never do that again you know I'll leave that up to the professionals I'll leave that up to people that that can talk to strangers or something like that no uh, here's where it begins You, you just identify whom God has put in your life and I mean with a pencil and paper just sit down and say what are my circles of influence Who who do I know when I go here or at work or there? And just list them out. That is your pool. That is where God has placed you right now. And then you begin to pray for those people. And ask that God might be at work in their lives. And if he sees fit, that he might even use you toward that end. And then try and build rapport. Most of us know Randy Pope, the pastor at Perimeter Church in Atlanta. and Randy told me how they've tried to boil everything they do down to the simplest, simplest possible way so that anyone can learn it. Here's their approach to evangelism. You want to hear it? It's three words. Meet, befriend, invite. Now, it's real complicated. The meet part, here's what's involved in meeting. Hi, my name's Chip. All right, that's step one. The friend is just getting to know a person, asking basic questions. Where do you work? Do you have a family? Where are your kids in school or, or whatever, you know, where, where are you from uh, originally? How long you lived here? And I have a question, and I, I ask this to hundreds of people. It's not because I'm a pastor. Usually they don't know it when I ask it. I'll say, hey, here in Macon, do you have a church home? I definitely don't say, are you a church member? That'll bring the conversation to an end because most people here are members somewhere, though they may not have been there in 130 years, but they may be a member. So greet, befriend, and invite. And by invite, I just mean you, you invite them to, to move closer to Christ. It might be to read an article. It might be to go with you to eat lunch with somebody. It might be to an event. Easter is coming up in a few weeks. I mean, people think in terms of, well, Easter Sunday, I ought to go to church. I may never go any other time. And so you think of a person who say, hey, why don't you come with me and I'll, I'll meet you down there and I will want you to come to church or come to a Sunday school class or a home Bible study. It doesn't necessarily mean you're inviting them to, to a church. It may be to a small group, but you're taking the initiative to think of, of some things. I Have a friend, and he, he told me a neighbor moved into their neighborhood and he he went over and met them and and he was telling about himself and and he he mentioned church and they said oh look we're we're not, we 're jewish we 're not the only thing to do with the Christian church, but so he knew that door was shut, and so he just kind of would see them and, but he knew he wasn 't going to bring up church again and Then the wife found out her husband had parkinson 's, and my friend 's wife was getting to know her and she had another friend in their church whose husband had Parkinson's. So she got them together, and they became friends, and they kind of became this, this group. and That's ministry. And guess what happened? Then at Christmas, this person said, hey, I think I'd like to come to that church, to y'all's Christmas thing. That, that's what we're talking about. It, we're not talking about go tackle somebody on the street and, and force a Bible down their throat. Uh, it, it's greet, befriend, and invite. Last of all, uh, to just to make this briefer, behold, I'm with you always. The promise Christ gives us, gave those disciples gives to us, we're not doing this alone. You may feel alone, you're not alone. We do this knowing that Christ is with us, that we have a partner, you might say, who is there. In Jeremiah, God gives us covenant promise, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And it isn't just temporary, he says to the end of the age. It didn't end with that first generation of disciples or the second generation or the third generation. It is still in effect now. As long as the world lasts, Jesus has authority over all things and he will be with us as we seek to make disciples. I'll leave you this one question. What if 500 of us in 2018, just 500 of our members said, I'm going to pray and I'm going to seek to greet, befriend, and invite one person during this year. Can you imagine the fruit that might come from that, with that many people taking that smallest step? As we come to the Lord's table in just a moment, I also want you to think about this. Regardless of your background, if you're a Christian here today, You are coming to this table because somebody somewhere talked to you about Jesus. Somebody, whether they knew it or not, was obeying what Matthew 28 says. For many of us, it was a mother or a father or a grandparent or a coach or a youth pastor or or just a close friend, someone we, we knew in school. For me, it was my mother, primarily, and a couple of friends I grew up with. And so I am thankful for them today, and I hope that you have thanks in your heart for them that they took this seriously enough from a human standpoint that God used them to bring me now to the point where I can come to the Lord's table. Let's let's pray together. Father, our lives are so brief. We are reminded every week, when we read in the paper of, of people our age or younger or older that have that have died, and we pray that that as your word says about David, that he served you in his generation, and we ask that we would do the same. Enable us to make disciples, corporately as a church, cross-culturally as we send out missionaries and support them, but primarily daily, individually, where you put us. And we'd ask that even this coming week, that we might be more aware and alert of doors that you open where people allow us to see into their lives and invite us to come in. And that you might use us as salt and light to spread the gospel. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.